we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. Today, as we continue our series on cultural and ethical issues, we are going to be featuring Kasim Haviz, who is a host at the Christians United for Israel and the star of the movie Never Again. Uh, He was radicalized as a Muslim when he was a teenager and was actually thinking about joining a terrorist group. And so we're going to get into all of this uh, just a minute. This is an incredibly interesting interview. It's been one of my favorites. And no, I don't say that every week. <laughs> I enjoy everything uh, that I get to do in the show, and I'm grateful for everyone. But this was just a really awesome interview from such a unique perspective that you don't get to hear every day. It's incredible to hear about the story of somebody coming to Christ and just radically changing their lives. Uh, so I think you're going to enjoy as much as I did. But first... Make sure you fill out the survey in the description below. Thank you so much for those of you who have already. Uh, Your feedback is very important to us, and it's very helpful because you're the ones listening to the show, and we want to make sure you're getting the most out of it uh, that you possibly can. And also, I didn't know this mattered until recently, but apparently it does. If you wouldn't mind, especially if you listen on Apple, but wherever you listen, if you would just leave a review, even if it's not a written review and you're just going to click the stars, if you would just uh, leave a review, that'd be awesome. Preferably a five-star one, uh, but of course, that's up to you. Uh, Actually, no, it's not. Just leave a five-star review, and that'll be great for us. So uh, if you could go ahead and do those two things, that would be awesome. And if you do the survey, uh, you'll actually be entered into a drawing where you may receive uh, the book The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf, one of the best books against abortion that I've ever read. And so uh, we're going to be doing a new book this upcoming month, but this is your last chance to get in for that one. So fill out that survey. And we have a lot of really exciting things coming up, a brand new series we're going to be announcing in a few weeks or so. This one's not quite over yet. There's a few more uh, critical topics that we have to go over, but we have some very exciting stuff coming up. So make sure you stick around and check Monday nights at 6 p.m. for new releases. And thank you for joining us for this interview uh, with Kasim. We think you are going to be blessed by it. Kasim Haviz, who is a star of the movie Never Again. Uh, He is a host and speaker for the Christians United for Israel, and we are grateful to have him here today on The Universe Next Door with us. Kasim, how are you? I'm good. Uh, It's great to be on. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. And actually, we were just talking. Uh, We're not too far apart, so maybe next time we can do a live interview, but but I'm really excited to get into this. No, I am looking forward to it. Should be cool. So I wanted to get into the movie Never Again that you had worked on, and um, and I want to hear all about that. But before we do that, I want to know a little bit about your story, because it's not often that I'll get to have a discussion on the show with someone who was a former Muslim and is now a Christian, and and not a quiet Christian. You're making it well known. Uh, you, you've made a movie about the atrocity of anti-Semitism, so you're doing things uh, publicly. You are making your faith known, and that is really cool. So um, can you start? by, I guess, telling us a little bit about your story. We know that you know you were formerly a Muslim who was radicalized as a teenager. Now you're a follower of Jesus. And and so, you know, these are two very different things. I'm deeply curious as to what happened, if you wouldn't mind elaborating uh, on your story. For sure. Uh, so 
I'll touch on certain aspects, not in as much detail, because it does talk about it in a documentary. Um, as you said, uh, I grew up fairly radical Muslim. I grew up in England. Uh, my family came from Pakistan, very conventional immigrant story. And I think which is common with many new immigrant communities in a society which is very different from the one they came from, they kind of uh, almost stay together neighborhood-wise. So I grew up in a predominantly mm-hmm. Muslim Pakistani neighborhood. And so what many people, I think, so I've lived in the United States for, I want to say, four years now. Uh, One thing many people take for granted in the United States is the United States. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So one one of the things I noticed living here is race is such a hot topic and such a constant conversation in the U.S. And I think it's so easy when you live in a place to take it for granted and and judge it by a standard which isn't rational. Um, like I always say, I am so grateful. Like like I said, my family from Pakistan. You know, I'm visibly brown. <laughs> like um, <laughs> I'm so grateful that my children will grow up in my future children. Don't have any kids yet. Will grow up in the United States and not Europe, because. Mm. In Europe, there is a perception. I lived in England for 30 years, just under 30 years. There is a perception in Europe to be British or French or German or whatever it is. The perception is that to be truly British or German or French, you have to be white. That is something that doesn't exist in the United States. It it genuinely doesn't. You know, I've experienced more racism in Europe, and we're not talking about because I was there longer. I've never experienced any racism in the United States. That's not to ex- say that racist people don't exist. They exist in every country. Sure. But if you look at radicalization, especially in the Muslim community, thousands of European Muslims joined ISIS compared to a handful from the US and Canada. And it's because in Europe, and this is something I experienced firsthand, you don't feel part of the country that you're born in, which is a massive issue. In the United States, we have the idea that if you're born here and you're American, we don't care where you're from. We don't care what God you worship. If you're an American, you're an American. Mm-hmm. And I think people in the United States take that for granted because we look at it from this, we are the worst. It, it's inter- like to, to me, it, it's, it, it bamboozles me how negative people are about this country when this is all they've experienced and they've not seen the world outside. Um, but... I, I touch on that because that was my experience growing up in Europe. I, I was British, born in Britain. I wasn't Pakistani because culturally I was different, but I never felt part of British society. Uh, and that led to radicalization and extremism in my community, which I embraced. So, um, so sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was just going to ask, what what was it like? Like, for those of us looking in from the outside, we've read about Islam. We've, uh, of course, we've seen things on the news and all that sort of thing. But what is it like, like, to be a radical uh, or to be radicalized as a Muslim as a teenager? I mean, what is that's kind of a broad question, but what is that experience like? <laughs> so, what's really interesting is like my parents and grandparents' generation came from Pakistan. And honestly, I wouldn't say they were extreme. They were very observant, but they weren't extreme. They really wanted to be part of the society that they came to. Yeah, they made a choice. They didn't. They weren't forced out of their country. They chose to come to the West, and they wanted to be part of that society. Okay. What they found was a society which wasn't 
ready to accept them. Again, you know, I my wife was born in America. She's American by birth. And I always say to her, there is a huge difference between how successful the Pakistani community in the United States are compared to the UK because they two very different experiences. Really? And oh, hugely different. Wow. Like vastly different. You know, you the the Pakistani Americans that I have met are incredibly confident in who they are. They are proudly American and very proud of the country that they came from, but they're American. Many British Pakistanis, I would say the majority, in my experience, are still wrestling with who they are. They don't feel British, and they feel an attachment to Pakistan, and some of them have never even been to Pakistan. So, it, so it, it's a vastly different experience. But it, it's in, it was in that situation which allowed radical Islamic groups to really gain a foothold because you have a population of young people who don't feel they belong. And when you grow up Muslim, it's not something you do once a week or it's not something that you say you are. It is something you live. You know, you're praying five times a day. You are reading the Quran daily. It governs every part of your life, what you're eating, what you're doing. So it's something that you can easily attach to. It gives you a, a sense of identity. So, but there are things that are happening within the Muslim community, both radical and non-radical, which are problematic. There is, and I think this is common with many communities, there is a rose-tinted lens when we look at history. We don't look at historical wrongs. We don't look at things which are negative. We, we see it through the, the lens of when Islam was in control, the world was a better place. And, you know, that, that's not completely accurate. Um, so when you have extremists coming into your community and giving you essentially taking the messages you've grown up with and then weaponizing them against everybody else, it's very potent because one of the biggest weapons used to radicalize is victimhood. And mm. if you can create that sense of you're a victim, and this is a message I grew up with, you know, you're a victim of the West. The West is at war with Islam. I mean, what does that mean? Like, if you break that wow. phrase down, it doesn't really mean anything. And, and that's incredibly interesting because now in the West, they're teaching Westerners they're victims of the West. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is the challenge, though. There is no way to address that victimhood. Like, how am I going to address, okay, if I believe I'm a victim of the West, how do I address that? You can't. So you're stuck in this spiral of constantly being a victim. And you can't get out. You victimhood is almost needs itself to flourish. If you choose, I'm not going to be a victim. You fight your way out. But when you believe you're a victim, you can't address the victimhood because it doesn't really exist, and the person you're directing it at doesn't really exist. It creates a, a wellspring of angry people looking to lash out, and you become radicalized without even realizing. You know the the messages that were prevalent in my community again like i stand by that the community i grew up in wasn't extreme but there was extreme anti-semitism there was these anti-western ideas and when you constantly hear them it just becomes fact you know the idea that the jews control the world or america is evil for me weren't opinions they just became facts because i've been hearing them since i was five years old mm, so wow. you're, there's a fertile grind there for extremist ideas to flourish 
and it, it sort of sounds like it becomes personal. I mean, I'm thinking over here, it's like, oh, well, you know, your problems and your, your economic situation, all that. Well, these straight white males did that to you. And over there, it's like, oh, well, you know, the, these Jewish people, they did this to you. And it sounds like it just kind of sounds like a personal issue. It, it, it becomes personalized. Is that accurate? Yeah, because it becomes like they, the they, whoever the they are, right. are doing something which is personally affecting me. And if it wasn't for them, I'd be successful which, I mean, logically doesn't make sense, obviously. But when you are buying into the victim narrative, logic and sense don't really come into it. Yeah, it really is a terrifying thought to think that we can put people in those categories. Um, And throughout your journey, you read a book called The Case for Israel that changed your views and and the way you view Israel. And uh, why is that? So when I came across that book, I was at my most extreme. Uh, you know, I was ready to join a terrorist group. I thought violence was the only way. Because can you, can you elaborate you know, what's on that really a little in- bit? I've, I've never actually had sure. a conversation with someone in that situation. I- so when you come down, go down this extremist route, and I think it, it, it applies to any sort of extremism, be it religious extremism, uh, like Islamic radicalism, or even joining a gang what they do is they push this narrative you are gradually brainwashed and essentially they're creating the narrative of hopelessness which i which i think is one of the most powerful messages of christ which is the opposite that there is always hope because if somebody has hope you they're they're very difficult to one brainwash to brainwash somebody you have to give them a sense of hopelessness if a person has hope in something higher then they're very difficult to brainwash. They're very they're not susceptible to bad ideas. So, you know, you you keep going down that path, you become more angry, you become more hateful, you it's becoming more internalized and you need to now lash out. Like mm. you're and that that's essentially the journey I went down and what is really bad and and it's got so much worse since I was at college. So, it's one thing when the community you're in, like the Muslim community that I was in, are validating the bigotries that you have it becomes even more so when you have you know maybe this is a sweeping statement but you have in my experience at the time and i still see it today on campuses in the u.s when i speak you have these middle class white progressives who without knowing what they're talking about will validate some very bad ideas so it reinforces this idea that wow you know what i am striving for what i believe is right uh and that's where i was you know you're pushed to the extreme that i have to do something nothing else matters so i sought out you know pakistani-based terrorist groups to essentially take the next step in that because i was at the point where that seemed to be the only thing that would make a difference you know this is in the post 9-11 world and you know at the time 9-11 i didn't see as a negative for me i saw 9-11 as something that america deserved which of course is abhorrent but that's the level of brainwashing and moral bankruptcy i had adopted because i was the biggest victim so yes thousands of americans were murdered simply for going to work one day but you then go well but when you look at what america is doing you can understand and once you start understanding the murder of innocence you're already down a really bad route Mm. wow and 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 so was it the case for Israel? That, were there like a few main things that just, you were like, wow, I didn't know that? Because, I mean, this is a pretty radical change. Like going from wanting to join 
a terrorist group to saying, well, Israel needs to remain a state and, and I'm going to support it and be an advocate of Zionism and so on and so forth. So what's the deal with that? Is there something that was just like, wow, I need to change my thinking on this? So I picked up the case for Israel when I was at my most extreme, and I picked it up not in this quest for the truth. It was arrogance. I was convinced mm. that I was right. So I thought if I read this, it would just validate it more. But I had been in an echo chamber of my own opinions and my own lies, essentially. So this, for the first time, gave me an, a different perspective. And it, you know, I wouldn't, it didn't, it, there wasn't a eureka moment, so to speak, where it changed everything. But it essentially, it, it, it put a small hole in my wall of lies. It, it, there was a little bit of light coming through. And in trying to kind of block that light, it took me down a rabbit hole where I started looking deeper into things and started seeing the holes in the arguments and beliefs that, you know, I was living by and, and willing to die by at that point in my life. Uh, so, so it's, and that eventually would lead me to, to visit Israel again, hoping to validate my old beliefs, not seeking out the truth. And in Israel, I saw a reality which I wasn't prepared for or expecting at all. So you went to Israel thinking, okay, I'm going to go and, and this is this pilgrimage is going to confirm uh, everything that I think about Israel. Yeah, it was it was the last, I would say it was like the last roll of the dice. It was like, I'm going to see it and it will be all of the lies or everything that is wrong in the world I will see in Israel and I can once again go back to the path that I believe is the truth. Wow, it's sort of like, uh, it reminds me of Martin Luther going and climbing those steps and kissing every step, thinking, oh, when I get to the top, oh, my sin will be forgiven, and I'll finally feel like there's a weight lifted off, right. which didn't happen. Right. No, very much so. Wow. Yeah, th this is just like, this is an incredible story. I mean, what what is it like, like, being prepared to join a terrorist group? Is it like, uh, is it like ISIS-related? I know one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm certainly not an expert here, but ISIS... And uh, Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda kind of they wanted to like establish their what do they call it when they establish their place and then they kind of spread out and ISIS wanted to start the with a caliphate, with... like an is right. Islamic state, a caliphate. Right, right. And so the group that I was looking at was is called Lashkar Taiba, which still exists today. It's a Pakistani-based terror group, and hmm. ultimately all these extremist groups uh, believe in the same thing that a caliphate has to be established. There is a saying of Muhammad which talks about the re-establishment of an Islamic state and how it's an obligation upon Muslims. Uh, look, most Muslims, the majority of Muslims, aren't that, I don't want to say not well-read, but you know, the Quran is in Arabic. The majority of Muslims don't read Arabic mm -hmm. to the first language. Like, I can read and, and recite the Quran fluently. Can I understand it? No. Because you're taught to recite and read because prayers are in Arabic, but you don't necessarily understand what you're saying or, or, or what, Islam says on a deep theological level on many things. But most terrorist groups, most extremist groups, even some Muslim political groups which exist in different parts of the Muslim world, the, the, one of their primary goals is to reestablish a caliphate, an Islamic state. So, so this is actually, a, it's a concept that comes from the Quran, and then the difference is like how they go about uh, carrying that out. Right. You know, if you go back through history... Um, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which was considered the last Muslim caliphate, there have been movements since that time, far in British India, in the Middle East, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in the 50s and 60s, I mean, up until today. Since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, there, are, there have always been movements which are seeking to reestablish an Islamic state of some sort, 
through various methods, be it political or like ISIS by force. Wow. Now, now at the time when you were still in this movement, were you aware of guys like, let's say, uh, this might have even been later, but Nabil Qureshi, who was, who was previously a Muslim and became a Christian, he passed away, or, or someone like David Wood, who he's constantly making videos about Islam. And were you like aware of those sorts of people? And it, like, have you, had you ever heard of them at the time? Not really, no. And I think, again, part of it comes from there is, there is a culture with, within islam uh of i'm trying to, there's a culture in islam and i i think the best way to explain it is actually let me take a step back one of the things that really lit a bulb for me later in life when i became a follower of christ was the relationship aspect of it hmm. that christ wants a relationship with you this isn't a do what i say or i'm going to banish you to hell Islam, there is a lot of, for example, you know, the punishment for leaving Islam, apostasy is death. You know, the, there is this, uh, there is a very narrow road you walk between following, searching, and punishment. So you you almost block those things out. Mm. Now, was there a moment where like you just truly grasped the gospel and, and said, oh my goodness, or, or is it more of like a gradual sort of thing? Like how did you come to Christ? So that was completely unexpected. That was not, that was, oh, I bet. so uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was not ever. So I came back from Israel completely changed and realized that, you know, I had been wrong and I started speaking out a little bit and, and a hostile response from community, family, etc. Uh, I then became an atheist and just abandoned any concept of God or religion or anything. But after about a year of being an atheist or calling myself an atheist and reading things from Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, mm -hmm. I was very underwhelmed by the arguments that they made. There was these very infantile, if you believe in God, you're an idiot kind of approach that these writers right, took. Right. And I thought, okay, that's, Okay. And, and then just in general, I mean, when I look out of my window in my office and I see the sky, the clouds, uh, the trees, it's very difficult for me to comprehend that this is an accident. This is a happy accident. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if you've ever bought IKEA furniture, you know that things don't just happen by accident. You know? <laughs> no, it takes a lot of work. Not there at least. <laughs> right. So, so I couldn't accept on a rational level that it was an accident. So I started re-engaging with you know the idea of god and faith and i explored and looked at buddhism and sikhism and hinduism and all these different belief systems and i even re-looked at islam because that would have been the easiest for me on a on a you know i grew up with this and christianity essentially i sidelined i didn't even think about it simply because in, in england you know there are i knew dozens of people who said they were christians but they'd never been to a church they never picked up a bible they didn't even know, own a bible but they identified so i saw it as almost this very lukewarm mm. belief system that didn't really mean much um and also being muslim you know th there's a lot of criticism of christianity and, and all these things so i i it just slid under the radar essentially and then i, I moved to canada and 
I ended up working with Christians United for Israel for the first time, you know, and that was the first time I'd ever met Christians who kind of lived by their faith. Like it was something that dictated, not even dictated, but it inspired every aspect of their life. And that was, it was an interesting experience for me. And I, I would eventually get hired by the organization. Still, I wasn't a Christian at this point. And I even made a joke. I remember saying, you know, like, this isn't going to be one of those he comes to Jesus moments, okay? Like, we have a common right, right. goal in speaking up for Israel and against anti-Semitism, but that's really where it's going to end. Uh, fast forward maybe six months, I'm in Arizona. Uh, I have an early flight out, can't sleep, end up reading the Bible in my hotel room. Very cliche. Um <laughs> And then I kind of, I'm like, okay, this is like, what is this? And then in the space of a week, things keep happening, which are pushing me like closer to this acceptance of Jesus, but I'm fighting back. Just, just things which do not make sense. So that, for the, for example, the, that early morning flight after I'd been reading the Bible that night in Minnesota airport, waiting to, for my flight back to Winnipeg. And yeah, the uh, the place on the second floor where I got coffee was really busy, which I, I'd never seen it that busy. This guy goes, do you mind if I sit down? I'm like, sure, dude, do whatever. He happened to be a missionary on his way to the Balkans. So then we're talking about faith for and two hours while I wait for my connection. Um, and essentially, by the end of that week, I was on my own in Canada. And I realized that I had to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And that's what I did. And Look, the only way I can explain it is it's like it's like being in prison, but you don't even know you're in prison. But then somebody opens the door and you're like, wow. oh, this is what freedom feels like. And yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't something I went into having studied and, and analyzed like I do with almost everything else. It I just knew. Uh, I mean, I'm studying for a bachelor's in biblical theology now. So playing right. catch up. But yeah, that. That's kind of how, well, that is how it happened. Now, what are some of the, uh, like, as a former Muslim, what at the time were some of the biggest things, like, how did you view the Trinity, for example? Like, the concept of the Trinity, was like, was it like, this is stupid, they believe in all these different gods, and, like, what are some of the major right. things that, that you just didn't, were like, what are you doing? So, the Trinity was a big one, because it's seen as, you know, when Islamic scholars comment on it or talk about it, they essentially say that Christians believe in three gods. Uh, so there's that, the idea that Jesus is the son of God. For example, the Quran reiterates time and time again that, you know, Allah is no one's father. He is not begot. He is not begotten. So, for example, it's Christians, you know, we call, you know, God, the heavenly father, things like that. In Islam, to call Allah, you know, your father is hugely sinful. Um mm. The idea of the crucifixion, the resurrection, they were all very, yeah, they, they just didn't make sense. But again, I'd seen them through a Muslim lens, which either intentionally or just through willful ignorance has omitted key details, which mm. kind of make everything connect and make sense. And so the idea of like uh, you, you coming to Christ, everything changing, what are some of the things, like the greatest differences between Islam and Christianity that you noticed in terms of, of practice and doctrine? I know, I know you touched on some of those. You talked about the relationship uh, aspect of it. But what are some of the big differences between the two religions that you observed upon coming a Christian? 
I think one of the biggest and most challenging for me was the idea of being saved by grace. Mm. The idea that you know you are uh, you are saved because of Christ's because Christ died for our sins. Where so you know here I am. I'm a Christian. I, I get baptized, and I'm like, okay, now what? Like, do we do I have to pray? Like, how do I pray? Do I pray five times a day? Is there a structure? Like, so there are all those kind of things where you know Islam is very. It's there's a lot of works, so to speak. You know, there's a lot of things you have mm. to do. There's a lot of you've got to pray, you've got to fast, you have to do these things. This is how you pray specifically. So that was incredibly challenging, and even today, it's it's a challenge that I struggle with sometimes because it's just so ingrained. Um, I also think just the the idea within Jesus' teachings of, I guess the the idea of loving your neighbor, uh, and again, I, I don't say that in a disparaging way towards Islam, but it is. Islam has so many different facets to it. it. It talks about peace, but it also talks about war. It also, Islam is not only a faith, but it is also a political system for ruling. Yeah, and, and how to treat. And so it was very interesting, you know, reading the Gospels, reading the words of Jesus, and there isn't this level of anger and venom directed towards people who believe differently. Mm. Where in the Quran there there is look people don't like to talk about it because it isn't comfortable and it isn't pleasant but you know I think especially for the Muslim community themselves they've got to talk about these things to actually move forward pretending it doesn't exist and you know well-meaning liberals going no 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 it doesn't exist doesn't help anybody because there are people in where my family are from Pakistan there are Christians who are suffering and being persecuted because of what the Quran says. So, so I think that was another a major real difference, and, and just the again, it's very cliche, but just the the emphasis on love is so big. The, the emphasis on love and grace was just really it. It was it's almost difficult to comprehend when you come from a background which is so different. It 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 it, it takes time to really grasp and accept it and internalize it yeah sure and, and even as um even as a christian believer now i was raised roman catholic up until about fifth grade i went to catholic school and after that we went we went to catholic school for a little while and and then we just didn't um but e even in this setting it's like that idea of being saved by grace is so foreign it's like i don't have to do anything it's not only that but i can't do anything because christ alone is sufficient right. he alone can pay for our sin but just trying to wrap your head around that idea, I, I can't imagine. It must have been ten times more difficult to someone coming from from Islam, especially as you as you've described uh, a God who is not personal at all. You're not created in His image. He's not your father, and um, it's just such a, a different world. Right, no, no, completely. You know, the the idea of being justified by faith, and you know, the idea of you know, this is a free gift. You you couldn't have earned, you couldn't have earned it if you tried. But this is what what you get. It just is. It's very difficult to process, and it's very because it is. Again, like I said about other things, when you grow up with certain ideas and you just build on them as you get older, to then shift it. It's while you may know it on a this makes sense, 
to shift uh, on an intellectual and an emotional level, it, it takes time. And, and, you know, once you start to get closer to that and, and really start to internalize it, you feel that, I don't want to say confidence is the term, but mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, that God loves you this much, that, you know, he's willing to send his only son to suffer on the cross. I mean, if that doesn't create a connection and a relationship, that somebody is willing to do that, if that doesn't make you you wake up every day and go, what am I doing in my day-to-day life to honor the sacrifice made for me personally? I, I don't know what will. Mm. Yeah, it really is incredible. And the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It's like we need to be reminded of it every day. Um, it, it's so easy to get right. caught up in thinking, well, I need to do this and this and this. And, and we do. We do good things because we love God, but he doesn't love us because of right. that. We do it out of his love. And um, and it's such a it's such a simple thing. The gospel is so simple, but it's so hard to to grasp and to believe because it's just it seems too good to be true, but it's not. Right um, now, as a Christian, had you had you had any experience like did following Christ cost you family relationships? Did it get you any threats? Did friends abandon you? Like, what was that like? So I was already dealing with those challenges simply for you know supporting Israel. I, mm. you know, friends, family, death threats. And even now, you know, I will get death threats. And, and there was a period when I first, you know, became a Christian where it was, I always say, the world's worst kept secret, where I wouldn't openly say I was a Christian. Mm. But if I was asked, I wouldn't deny it. <laughs> right. Because the challenge was, at, at the time, I was in a strange place in terms of my immigration. And there was a chance I may have had to go back to the UK and it would have been dangerous. It would have been a difficult situation for me to be. But, you know, as time grew on and circumstances changed, yeah, I, again, I do still get death threats. I, you know, deal with these things, but it, it's just part of it. I don't, you get to a point where you go either you just accept it for what it is and carry on, or you just live completely afraid all the time. I mean, you know, and, Again, I think we sometimes get into this sense that being, you know, a follower of Jesus, that we're going to get everything we want in the positive. And it's like, no, we're told there's going to be challenges. Mm. And, you know, the challenges I face, I feel are absolutely minute and minuscule to the challenges that there are believers who are in Iran or Pakistan or, or countries where it's simply illegal, or even, you know, the people, believers in this country who are from backgrounds where it's incredibly costly to, to follow Christ. So, you know, I I don't diminish the challenges I have, but I'm, I'm grateful that I have those challenges because they've forced me to grow as a person and also grow in terms of being able to forgive people. Because it, it is easy to let the anger and rage build up into resentment. And, it, and it's something I've also had to overcome before I became a follower of Christ, I was very angry at, you know, at Islam as a whole, at my family. And you have to let that go. Like you, you have to, you have to forgive because ultimately it comes to a point where you're hurting yourself and you're hurting your own walk with God. Now, how does that idea of, of forgiveness, how does that sort of square with your experience in, in Islam? Is that contrary, or is there an element of forgiveness? How does that sort of contrast or compare? There is an element of forgiveness, but there is also 
large elements of retribution. You know, so for example, I mean, uh, if you look at Islam, countries that have written into their legal penal system Islamic law, you know, like Saudi Arabia, for example, you know, amputations still happen in Saudi Arabia, beheadings still happen in Saudi wow. Arabia uh, for theft and things like that because it is part of the legal code. You know, these are the things that are codified within Islamic law. Um, and that's that's a challenge. I mean, you know, in Jesus was very clear about turning the other cheek. And again, you know, it, that's a very oversimplification uh, of mm-hmm. of everything. But within Islam, there is there is a strong. If you look at the legal systems in the Muslim world, which are inspired by Islamic teachings, all of them are pretty harsh. I mean, I, yeah, that's the, the easiest way I can explain it. And look, it's very easy for experts on CNN to say what is Islam and what isn't Islam. Mm. Sometimes I just say, look, maybe you should ask the people who have grown up in the faith and are living out the faith what real Islam is before you decide what is acceptable Islam for you and your viewers. Right, right. Or maybe read their doctrine instead of asking uh, white leftists who have probably never had anything to do with Islam. Right. Now, did you have any uh, success sharing the gospel with family and friends? Did you ever attempt that, or was it just where you just rejected? I So over time, I became much more confident in doing that, because initially there was a kind of hesitancy. Um, I, w- I would say that I've not had success, to be completely honest. Uh, it's been very difficult, because when you are in a situation where you're surrounded by, where this is all you know, and you're constantly surrounded, and you know, the idea of leaving Islam is, it's if you if you look at the the vast majority when people leave the people who grow up in christian homes leave their faith which sadly you know happens fairly frequently nowadays it is what it is like literally it's like okay that's really sad we pray that you know they come back but that's it in most islamic communities and i'm not talking about in the middle east or south asia i'm talking about in the west there is a price that they will pay so I, there is an element of fear for people to even be willing to to look at that or embrace that, and that has been a challenge. Like I, I have realized that it's something that I have to do, and I will continue to. And you know, I think it's been good for me in terms of looking at how I approach this and sharing the gospel. Because I, you know, when before I was a follower of Jesus, and people approached me trying to share the gospel honestly did it in some of the most horribly offensive ways i could i could you know imagine and they had very limited success because you know while their intentions were maybe good their methods weren't but it's been in it's been a learning experience for me and you know i'm hoping that that can be used to benefit others and hopefully bring others from a similar background to the gospel because there are a lot of people out there in the muslim world who are searching who are looking for something who know that there is something out there but where they're at is not it that's not it um but they've just not been exposed to the authentic gospel they've been given this negative view of the gospel by their own teachers so you know it's 
it's for us to go out, you know, make those relationships and, and create an environment where we can share the gospel with people who really need to hear it. Now, just before we move on to your, your movie section and what you kind of do, I just wanted to ask you one more question. There seems to be in the West, yeah. and, and specifically in America, just at least in my knowledge and experience, uh, there, there's sort of this infatuation with Islam, where it's like, well, we want to invoke Sharia law, and we want to support this and this, this and this. If, if you disagree with anything Islam says, you're evil, uh, unless, of course, it's not playing Buzz Lightyear in the Middle East. And uh, So it's like, there's this idea of this infatuation um, what do you think sort of is the cause of that? And what would you say to somebody who may be misled in, in believing that uh, these things are true? I honestly think that there is this, I, I guess the way I describe it, there's this racism of low expectation where we look at Islam in the West as something which is, you know, foreign and you know mysterious and all these things and we look at it from well you know their culture is different yeah well you, you know okay honor killings happen in this community but the, you know we need to try and understand and it's absolutely ludicrous for, for free societies to operate there have to be red lines you know the, the united states is one of the most open and free societies if not the most open and free society in the world today you know, we have people from every single corner of the earth, but there has to be a red line where you go, this is not acceptable in our society. It's simply because the two things can't coexist. You can't, on the one hand, claim to be a free society, but look the other way when honor killings are happening because, you know, it's from a particular group. Yeah. And for me, that that's, that is a racism of low expectations where you are judging a group on a different set of morals because their culture it's not okay and look if you really want to talk about islam intelligently you need to study it you need to read the quran you need to read the quran in a language that you understand and you know you will get a very you'll get an accurate picture of what the beliefs are and 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 that's that's really this strange there's Look, there is acceptance is, you know, an important part of our society. There's acceptance when you are accepting extreme and dangerous ideas. And look, I am not for a second suggesting that every person who practices Islam has extreme or dangerous ideas, but mm -hmm. there are some that do. And it, and it's not just about Islam. There are when people are bringing extreme and dangerous ideas which are contrary to our values, which are contrary to human rights and all these things, you can't give them a free pass. And I, I literally said this on social media very recently, maybe a few days ago. And it was a little tongue-in-cheek, but it was also honest. I said, I miss being, uh, I never thought I'd miss being a radical Muslim because anything I did, people would excuse and make excuses for and give me a free pass. Being wow. a Christian, it's open season on no matter what happens, every Christian is targeted. You know, when something bad happens, people will jump over themselves to go, this isn't all Muslims, this isn't real Islam. And of course it's not all Muslims. But when something happens and a Christian's involved, every single Christian in the world then becomes implicated in that negative thing. And it's, 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 it's ludicrous. 
Yeah, and we sort of see that now with the Roe versus Wade stuff. Everybody all of a sudden is turning toward and, and attacking Christianity. They're saying, well, these religious people don't want babies to die. And, you know, it's like it's it's Christianity always seems to be the root of the attack when, when somebody disagrees with something, at least in America. It, it's just an easy target, sadly. It, you know, it's, it's an easy target, and people are okay with that when— yeah, it, it, it's just incredibly frustrating to me because it is, it's such a double standard when you see it reversed or in any of the context. Again, you know, with Islam, it's a perfect example. People will jump over themselves to go, you know, this isn't reflective of all Muslims. This isn't real Islam. This is, and okay, fine. But it seems whenever Christians are involved or people perceive Christians are involved, or want to use Christians as a as a as a convenient person to blame, then every single Christian is involved, and all of a sudden, every Christian becomes a white male from the south, <laughs> and it's just okay, all right, cool. That's you know, it, it's very easy to become a Christian scholar by by watching TikTok videos now. You know, some of these ludicrous. Mm. I'm going to debunk the Bible. It's like, one, right. this is not accurate at all. <laughs> this is not an argument. This is, this is, right. yeah, so. There's, there's been a lot of that, especially recently, where some of the arguments, it's just like, if there was anybody there with even a little bit of knowledge of Christianity, it would just, it would end in two seconds. But um, well, let me, let me just ask you this. So the sure. idea of, Let's say Muslims in America, for example, most of them are probably not extreme. They're not going to go out and cut anybody's head off. But do you think that the Muslims who are not extreme, do you think they're sort of the ones living in an opposition to uh, Islamic doctrine? I mean, yes, to be honest. I, for me personally, in my interpretation of Islam and how I've studied Islam, and I studied Islam fairly thoroughly, Islam has a conflict happening within itself and there are those who are calling for reform there are those who are you know saying that reform in islam only goes backwards because the perfect form of islam was that practiced by muhammad and his companions in the seventh century eighth century so the way i see it there are people who aren't living by the dictates of the quran aren't living essentially by islam's legal views like there isn't a in islam there are things where there is no gray area there are things which are very black and white what is living in accordance with islam and what isn't like there there can be the argument made from the quran that muslims shouldn't even live in non-muslim countries mm -hmm. like there's a verse in surah yasin one of the chapters of the quran which basically said they shouldn't or that if there is an islamic state established that muslims should go back there and shouldn't be living in uh, under non-Muslim rules. So that there are a lot of things there which, you know, some questions need to, I think, need to be asked. And I think, again, a lot of people are ignorant, even Muslims are ignorant of what Islam says on a theological level and, uh, in much of its texts. And look, in the United States and Canada, you have had Muslim reform movements spring up, you know, people like Dr. Zahudi Jassa, Rahil Raz in Canada, who you know, have these Muslim reform movements, but when you look at them, you know, they've been around for almost two decades, they probably have a handful, if that, of members. Like, they're, they're gaining no traction because ultimately the ultimate 
influence, power, rulings, whatever you want to call them in Islam, come from the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad. And some of the reform ideas aren't aligned with either of those. And the Islam has a system built into it, which makes reform very difficult. It, it, I, I believe so. It makes reform, I, I think reform's not the right term, modernization, very difficult. Because there are some things which are written in such a direct and cast iron way. So your movie, uh, Never Again, it, by the way, let me just say quickly, we've had a lot of people on the show. This is easily been one of my favorite episodes so far um not to mention you have an english accent so you sound smarter than me uh, dang it but this this is this has been great uh this has been awesome but let me just ask you this your your movie never again um it it's obviously about anti-semitism and that's very popular today this yeah. is nothing new it's been popular for thousands of years but we have celebrities regularly mocking jewish people mocking israel we see it even in government officials and so on and so forth and uh, and of course, we have had people for a little while even deny the Holocaust happened. So w with that right. being said, what is Never Again? And what was sort of your motivation for making that film? Sure. So the phrase Never Again really came about after the Holocaust with the idea of we will never allow a genocide of this scale to happen again. It was kind of the, what the world said. Um, sadly, you know, you look at Darfur, Rwanda, Bosnia, the mm -hmm. Christians in the Middle East never again really hasn't meant anything. Um, and the, the real, the thinking behind the documentary was, you know, Irving Roth, who sadly passed away last year, was a Holocaust survivor. And we saw the importance of preserving his message for future generations. And we also saw that anti-Semitism had reached heights in the United States that it had never had previously. So we felt that it was time to do something and try and reach to get this message out that you know there is an issue here that we need to be aware of and we saw an opportunity where you have irving who suffered from you know one of the worst the, suffered from the manifestation of the worst form of anti-semitism in modern history mm. and we look at the holocaust as this distant history that you know that could never happen again then you have me who was born in the 80s in england and i grew up with the same sort of messaging and propaganda which made ordinary Germans very comfortable with murdering Jews. So we wanted to highlight how these words have an impact. You know, the, it, it, the Holocaust didn't just happen. There were many steps that led there. And Irving would always say it starts, it starts with words. So we wanted to show that and, and show the issue today and why Israel is so important to the Jewish people as a safe haven, as a homeland. And ultimately, at the end, it was a rallying call, especially to Christians. You know, when it's when it comes to doing right, we have to take the lead. You know, we you know, we are we have a special purpose. We're not here to be spectators in life. So that was really kind of it was asking a question and, and issuing a challenge. Here is the reality. Here are the facts. Now, what are you going to do about it? No. What have your reactions been uh, that you've received from people so far on this? Uh, they've been honestly overwhelmingly positive. Oh, good. Which is really good. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's been, I'm sure there are those who, you know, will straight away dismiss it for whatever reason. But so far, you know, we've had people from our church watch it. We've had other people, people who are, and, are not Christians, people who are completely apathetic. And it's had an impact. I, I think that the human stories impact people beyond our circle. And even if there are people who disagree, if, 
if it starts a conversation, because I think that's something that's severely lacking right now in general, we can't accept that somebody thinks differently without instantly going, okay, you're a bad person and you're evil because you think differently. Like that seems to be the way things are nowadays, which is just, it's it's absurd, unfortunately. But so if it starts a conversation, even if someone disagrees, if it starts a conversation and people are talking, I mean, it's a positive. Now, what were some of your favorite maybe parts or experiences of making this movie? You mentioned um, Irving Roth, of course, who passed away uh, a year or so ago, I think it was. And I had the the honor of meeting a Holocaust survivor in middle school. Um, but I mean, I yeah. don't remember it all that well. I was probably 11 years old or 12 years old. Now, was it, was it, uh, I, I'd always imagine it'd be really surreal to spend time with somebody who actually lived through the Holocaust, who experienced this huge, horrible event that we read so much about and watch documentaries about, um, what were some of your favorite parts and was it kind of surreal working with the Holocaust survivor? For sure. So I'd known Irving for a few years and we'd like developed a friendship prior to making the documentary. And it always was like, I loved Irving, a really special human being, but it always was a little surreal because you have this very potent symbol on Irving's arm, his tattoo from Auschwitz. Mm. You know what he's experienced. But here was somebody who was very full of life. You know, he wasn't somebody who, you know, just was head down feeling sorry for himself. You know, he was very energetic very full of life and really had an appreciation for life. And I think sometimes that's, it was an important reminder for me and and maybe touches a little bit on what we discussed earlier about people feeling like victims. He chose that he was not going to be a victim. He made a choice. Mm. He made a decision. And I, I think that's inspiring because I don't think any of us have experienced what it would be like to be a child in Auschwitz and lose a family member and lose family members yet here he was living life uh, so that was always incredible what i think another kind of my favorite but more impactful was actually retracing my own journey it, because I'd, i've been telling my story for a number of years but i've never really retraced my footsteps and really looked at it and and dug deep into it which the documentary made me do which I, I didn't expect and that was it was difficult but it was really important for me on an individual basis because it was during that process I realized that I had never forgiven the person I was you know I, I talk about trying to forgive other people I'd never forgiven myself and that was an, an important process I went through wow now before we sort of wrap this up uh first of all what well, let me ask you this where can we find this movie where can we go and watch it Sure. So it is on Amazon Prime uh, to rent and buy on Apple TV. Uh, if you go to neveragainthemovie.com, it will give you all the options. And I believe it will be out on DVD very soon also. So there, there are plenty of options there. Awesome. And, and just before we wrap this up, you do a whole lot of stuff. Uh, where can we go to learn more about you? What websites can we check out? Sure. So uh, Christians United for Israel would be the best one. Uh, their website is cufi.org. Um, we have educational materials they will have a schedule of our events where I speak periodically um, also we have something called the Kufi Weekly which I do every week so there will be links to that and there's also a link to contact me if anyone wants to reach out that's okay, kufi.org C-U-F-I dog Sorry. Well, I'll put that in the description down below And so thank you so much Kasim Hafiz for joining us uh, you're welcome back here anytime that was awesome and 
Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Uh, please share this podcast with a friend. It's the best way to get our content out there and to impact people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And make sure you check out the survey in the description below. Well, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door.